0: Well, as Andrew has said, today we continue on the Sermon on the Mount, looking at Matthew 5, 38 to 42. Let's go to the bottom of the right-hand page and over the page to 42. And you'll notice the topic I've chosen is the unjust generosity, which is a slightly strange topic to advocate something that's unjust, but chapter 5 is talking about things that are not normal not the normal good works that people do but supernatural good works the kind of good works that when people see them they don't praise you for them but they praise God because they're not normal they're signs that God is at work in your life that you would do something so extraordinary so supernormal so supernatural Now, all this was part of Jesus' discipleship training. He'd called people to join him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and fishing for men. He did supernatural works, but now he's teaching the disciples the real supernatural works, the ones that really show that God is at work in you. He was instructing them in how to fish for men. He was instructing them in what the kingdom of God was really like. And how as representatives of the kingdom of God they must live, especially how they must live in a way that is so different that people will praise God and also people will persecute them. Because they're going to be like the salts, they're going to be like the lights, they're going to be like a city on the hill. And that difference lies in supernatural good works. Or another way of seeing it is by having Exceeding righteousness. For this is not like the Pharisaic righteousness that's always looking for the loophole, that's always looking for the way of minimising God's laws because in the end you don't really want to keep God's law. The disciples' righteousness actually is because they want to keep God's law. Being touched by God and His Spirit within us, the righteousness that comes from the heart will demonstrate that you've been spiritually born again. Now Jesus has illustrated this in several issues already that we've looked at over the last few weeks. On murder and anger, on adultery and lust, on divorce and monogamy, on oaths and faithfulness, and that's where we're up to at verse 38, where we talk about living with your vengeance. Now revenge or vengeance is a very powerful and destructive emotion. Uh, Originally, the word just means payment in return, which is not necessarily such a bad thing. But it comes to mean with violent rage and with force, with extreme and excessive anger. Because once it is unleashed, revenge, vengeance, is enormously violent and powerful. The motive and the justification that gives us permission to act with such ferocity is being wronged. It's the action of the righteous, it's the justice of your cause that will enable you to lose all control in in exercising your prerogative to strike out. It's not exactly a case of revenge, it's more a case of protection, but there is in this morning's paper an appalling story of a man in Texas who, seeing his child interfered with sexually, bashed the man to death and killed the man. Well, you can understand it, can't you? There comes a righteousness in your cause that gives you permission, that allows you to strike out at levels that you would never think of doing but which in this very tragic case has happened there's every chance there's every chance the man won't be tried for it for it is considered that he acted rightly though he it says in the paper is very troubled by it of course remorse is very deep when you're wronged, when your case is righteous, when you're justified, well paying back, leave aside the Texas because that was also protection wasn't it, but paying back later, getting justice getting revenge, getting vengeance well that is something that gives you power in your argument, in your force and Well, I look around at you and all of you are old enough, by the looks of you, to have had somebody do something wrong to you. You know, sometimes you speak to a young audience and they haven't found anything that anybody's ever done to them wrong. Uh, they're only children and their parents have spoiled them so much they don't even recognise their parents have done wrong things to them. So, but I look at you and you guys all look like you've had things done wrong to you somewhere along the line. A slight has happened, some insult, some put down, some hate, some violence. Some spite you've been ripped off by somebody or overlooked by other people and haven't been invited to the party or weren't given the promotion that you should have. It can happen in our business, it can happen at home, it can happen in the extended family, it can happen in your neighborhood. It happens, it's just part of life, isn't it? That you have been done wrong. How do you handle it? And what is Jesus' way of dealing with it? How do you deal with evil, with injustice, with being spoken of untruly, with being gossiped about or or slandered, how do you deal with it? Matthew chapter 5, verse 39 very famously says but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also, for it says do not resist the one who is evil so how are you to live with evil? well Jesus is clear about it do not resist, do not oppose. Jesus is opposed to evil as any person is, and yet we're not to stand against the evil attacks upon us. For there are two competing Old Testament principles at work, and the Pharisees, in their desire to avoid keeping the law while appearing as if they were, paid attention to the one that suited them. But Jesus wants us to pay attention to both of them together. Notice please that Jesus is not setting himself over against the Old Testament law. It's not as if he were saying, well the Old Testament says an eye for an eye, but I say to you, turn the other cheek. No, that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is reminding those who like the Old Testament teaching of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that there is another Old Testament teaching as well. Turn the other cheek. And you need both of them. The Pharisees, you see, they liked one. Jesus wants us to keep all the scriptures. Now it's well known that the Old Testament taught an eye for an eye. Now, this is the first of the two principles, and it's a very important principle because it's the principle of justice both to the victim and the criminal. It's the principle of proportional retribution without which our justice system actually cannot operate. It's the principle of the punishment will fit the crime. Notice the two elements that are involved in it. Firstly, punishment. It's giving people what they deserve. That's what makes it just. But also notice the second principle, the second element, that there are limits to punishment. You mustn't give people more than they deserve. You you mustn't poke out two eyes in order to punish someone who poked out one, the limit of the punishment is the size of the crime. The punishment must fit the crime. Now, here's one of the problems I pointed out to you the other day about the problem of Sharia law, the Muslim law that is being imposed on some parts of the world, where in the Sharia law the thief has his hand cut off. Well, that is excessive because it doesn't matter how much he's stolen, his hand is worth more than what he has stolen. And so it is an excessive punishment to chop off people's hands because they have stolen. In the Old Testament, the principle is found in three passages listed on your outline there, you'll see, Exodus 21, Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19. And they all occur in the context of the law courts, and judgments. That is, the principle limits and controls the nature of revenge. Only the guilty in the law courts with a limit to the amount of punishment the law is allowed to apply. The law of an eye for an eye doesn't give the person, the individual, the right to act and it does control the limits to which even the court is entitled to act. But there's a second Old Testament principle that Jesus draws attention to. That is, do not resist evil, which is in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Proverbs. And this is the principle that Jesus' disciples are to live by personally. It's not the responsibility of the law courts and the governments, but it's the way to live personally. That is, how I deal with revenge and justice personally. Is different to how the society is to deal with revenge and justice judicially. So, for example, in Leviticus 19, we read, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. You see, it's not for me, it's not for you to repay. We can leave our case in the hands of God, we can leave our case in the hands of the courts. We must not take action. This is a fundamental principle of Western civilisation. It's so inbred to us, in a sense, we know it, but it's actually very biblical. That the reason I do not take action against my neighbour is there's a police force and there are courts and it's a criminal activity, they should deal with it, which means it will be dealt with justly and not out of my anger. And I won't make the matter worse by setting up a whole system of revenge back and forward and pay back so I pay back then they pay back and so it escalates on into a civil war it's not like that we have the courts set up by God in which justice can be evaluated properly and performed and executed properly and so we read in Matthew 5 verses 39 to 42 Jesus giving four illustrations of this principle of not resisting evil. Four illustrations of the principle that the world would never expect and that will mark us out if we do it as being somewhat strange and unusual. Three of them are drawn from the Old Testament and one from contemporary of his time. Firstly, turning the cheek. Isaiah 50 and Lamentations 3 speak of it, to insult somebody, to shame them was to slap them on the face. But it's not a matter of damage, except of course to our reputation and our feelings. It's more a matter of public humiliation and discourtesy. It's not the kind of king hit that one swimmer did to the other swimmer that so damaged he needed, a, he needed reconstructive surgery. It's the slap on the face that just wakes you up to the wrong that you are doing and the need to apologize. It's personal and it hurts, but all the more because it hurts our pride, it hurts our social standing and what we are to do is to rise above it and ignore it. I mean you can demand redress, you can name your, name your second and meet the person at dawn under the tree with pistols or with swords or whatever it is that you want to do but it's better to just offer the other cheek as the Old Testament teaches. And so treat the insults with contempt and trust God to defend you. For this is what the servant of the Lord will do, we find in Isaiah 50. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hide not my face from disgrace and spitting. Someone spits upon you, someone tries to shame you, well, you just turn the other cheek. The second illustration is and giving your cloak when somebody would sue you for your tunic. You read it in verse 40 and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic let him have your cloak as well. The idea here is that of bankruptcy. The Old Testament law requires that the rich man must return the poor man's cloak overnight because it's all the poor man has to keep himself warm except the Lord. So we read in Exodus 22, if you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it's his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I'll hear him, for I am compassionate, says the Lord. Jesus is saying then, if a man is suing you for everything, even for the possessions beneath your, coat, your cloak, then give him your cloak as well, not to oppose him, but to shame him. For you see, the rich Pharisees would say, well, I didn't break the law, I left him the cloak. I took his shirt, I took his singlet, I took everything else but his cloak, but hey, I gave him back his cloak, so I kept the law. But of course, the point of the law was to keep the man warm, not to actually have his cloak. By keeping the letter, they have missed the spirit totally. You must never reduce the poor man to shivering all night. That's an appalling thing to do. And so if they want to take all your clothing except for your cloak, well shame him by giving your cloak as well, is the point Jesus is making. Don't resist him, shame him. I can't find the third illustration of going the extra mile in the Old Testament because it comes from the Roman customs. Verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Uh, The Romans could and did uh, did impress people into public service, that is, into their service. And they could do it when and wherever they wanted to in the Roman Empire. And so they could force you to carry their burdens. Uh, If you remember Simon of Cyrene, they forced him to carry the burden of the cross as Jesus stumbled. And they could force you to go a mile. Jesus' disciples, rather than seeing this as unfair intrusion upon their life and upon their time, and you can imagine... It would certainly feel that, wouldn't it? As you were just walking along the street in George Street seeking to go shopping and suddenly the Roman soldier grabbed hold of you and said, now I want you to carry my shopping down past, the, down past Circular Quay. It's a great intrusion. You said, well, you know, what would you do? Well, you don't have any choice. You've got to do it. The Roman soldier was the Roman soldier. But Jesus says, well, take it as an opportunity to do good to the man. Not just to go the mile that you had to, but go another mile as well. So take the opportunity to show that you are free. You are free over your captor who insists upon something and you give him even more than he's insisted upon. The fourth illustration is that also of generosity. It's what all the illustrations actually involve, giving beyond requirement. Giving freely and not from constraint. Verse 42 to the one, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. How different to relationships that are based on an eye for an eye. To think of people in terms of giving to them rather than in terms of insisting on fair play under all occasions. It's the kind of generosity that is found throughout the Old Testament. So Deuteronomy 15, For there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Or again in Psalm 37, the righteous is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. I mean this pushes beyond the culture of payback, beyond the culture of revenge. This is looking for the opportunity to do good and to be generous. And it's a principle that we are to use in all situations of life. Don't enter into relationships on the, but you said, but, but I remember you were over there and when you said it, you were standing over in this corner and you did that and they were doing this. And enter into the relationships in terms of, but how can I help you? What can I say? How can I apologise for what's happened or for what I've done? How can I give to you now? It's a different mindset of relationship, a different attitude towards relationship and one that has enormous psychological health and well-being as well as creating a lot of social harmony and happiness all around about you. Uh, To the embarrassment of my friends, uh, our secretary is uh, uh, in, in our office, her grandmother died and so over the weekend and so she's gone to the country to the funeral and I got an email this morning from one of our staff saying the secretary's away, won't be back till Thursday, so please send me the outlines of materials and I'll look after them for the week, to which another member of staff overrode that and said, no, no, send them to me and I'll look after them during the week. It's nothing to do with demarcation disputes, is it? It's as far away from that kind of niggardly attitude, which says, well, it's not my job, I'm not going to do it, You know, I'm not involved in that kind of thing. Don't ask me to do her job just because she's had to go to a funeral. You'll have to employ a temp to come in and look after it for a while. That attitude is so destructive. The generous attitude is so Christian. It's so much like God, isn't it? Who gives generously, not what is required, but beyond what is required, above what is required, without even caring about requirements. It's a matter of heart, of attitude, of graciousness, of generosity. And if that is your attitude in life to all things, then when people take umbrage at you, people do the wrong thing to you, people mistreat you, then you don't seek to pay back. You don't seek to fight. You you accept what comes your way and say, well, they must be having a bad day, mustn't they? That's just the the character of it. And you're driving along Parramatta Road, I don't know why you are. That's the world's worst road to drive along, I think, isn't it? I mean, I avoid it at all circumstances. But when you're driving along Parramatta Road and people barge in in front of you and, and you have to force yourself to hit the brakes and then you... What's your attitude? I'll get him. I'll drive right up close behind him and blast the horn. I'll wave rude fingers out at him. And... How does that help you? How does that help him? I was driving along Parramatta Road coming down from a Kutuma convention some years ago and the man in front of me uh, kept on barging in front of people, he barged in front of the wrong person someone up ahead, so next time they came to the lights they pulled up side by side and one jumped out of the car, ran around and started banging on the, the bonnet of the next car, unfortunately the bloke who jumped out forgot that he was in an automatic and he'd left his car in gear and so it started to edge across the intersection of the red light and people were blasting horns everywhere as this big fight was happening. And Why not rather think, you know, that man's in a terrible rush. Maybe he's got a problem at home. Maybe he, he's in an emergency. He's got a temper already. I mustn't frustrate him. I've got to help him. I'll hold back from him. I tell you what's even worse, he's going to go home to his wife and kids I don't want them to get the backlash of his anger. Let me try and work how to make his life more comfortable. Just because he's making my life uncomfortable doesn't mean I've got to make his life more uncomfortable. He obviously has more of a problem than I have. And so let him go. Let him have his way. It doesn't matter if I hold back. being Parramatta Road... He's not going to get to the end of it any quicker than I am. No one gets to the end of Parramatta Road quickly until they turn off it, go some other route. So here's Jesus' teaching. It's some of the most famous teaching, isn't it, turn the other cheek? But are we meant to take it seriously? Well, it seems like wonderful ideals, but they are they are riddled with problems. Can I really allow bullies to trample all over me and turn the other cheek and give my cloak and go the extra mile? Can I really keep giving to beggars and giving the lazy who will not work, lending to borrowers who never repay? Can society run on this kind of pacifism without justice and punishment? I mean, we need to clarify here that Jesus was not giving a social, political, governmental law Jesus was talking about his disciples' personal life, in contrast to the Pharisees, who kept using the judicial law to explain their personal life. But they were using the technicalities of the law to avoid what it was saying to them. To use this section of Jesus' teaching as the ethics for society is to fail to read and understand what he was saying properly. As a young man I made that mistake and for many years I was a committed pacifist on the basis of this passage. But Jesus wasn't teaching pacifism, he wasn't teaching a legal system, a code of ethics for society, it has nothing to do with war soldiers or with law courts, it's got to do with the way in which individual disciples are going to deal with the hurts and insults that come their way. Even so, the problems remain. Can you live by this teaching or is it unrealistic idealism? Well the rest of the New Testament expects us to live by it. Come with me to Romans for a moment. Romans chapter 12, page 1142. 1142 Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, page 1142 and I'm reading from Romans chapter 12 and verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty but associate with the lowly, never be conceited, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, to live by the teachings that Jesus, there's no difference between Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount and Paul's instructions to the Romans. So what of us? Those of us who are his disciples, are we to live like this now? Yes, undoubtedly. You see, the Bible teaches us that there is a time for everything, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, A time to heal, a time to tear tear down, and a time to build up, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. You know the passage. There's always a time for everything. The Bible believes in justice, it believes in retribution, it believes in vengeance. But the time and the place for all those things is God's time and God's place, not your time nor your place, nor my time and my place. It can be the courts that God has set up, the government set up by God to bring justice into a land, or it could be the end of the world when he finally brings justice to everybody, but it's not now in your life and my life. This is not the time, this is not the place for you and I to exercise vengeance. Or revenge or payback. This is the time to be the servant of the Lord and the servant of the Lord came to suffer, to be persecuted, and to be unfairly treated, to be maligned and slandered and have false witnesses speak against him, to be taken away and beaten and bashed and then put on a cross and to be executed. At any point Jesus could have resisted At any point he could have called down the host of heavenly angels to stop them, but it was not the time. And he charges the disciples to take up the cross and follow him. Suffering insults and lies and false accusations and oppositions is all part of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ at this time. You see, remember what he has already told them here in Matthew chapter 5, just back over on the page in 976. He's given them a special blessing. He says, blessed, 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 and then there's one for you specially, Verse 11 of chapter 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's not now time for the disciples of the Lord Jesus to retaliate. We're to follow the one who came to give and so we're to continue to give and to forgive. How can we who are in the kingdom because God didn't punish us as we deserve but graciously laid down his life for us giving his son lovingly for us how can we hold other people to ransom? How can we hold others because of their sin against us? To call upon them to be punished when we have been forgiven so much sin against our Father in heaven. We cannot preach the gospel of forgiveness, friends, if we're always looking for justice in our own personal interrelationships. If you're always paying back every insult for insult, hurt for hurt, tit for tat, you haven't understood the forgiveness that the Lord Jesus Christ has won for us and God has given us. One of you last week mentioned to me the case of Nurse Edith Cavell. It's a great case. I've been reading about her this week. It's been very interesting. The 11th of October, 1915, she said, as she was in jail, having been then found guilty for espionage against the Germans. She was a British nurse in Brussels. She said, I thank God for this 10 weeks quiet before the end. Life has always been hurried and full of difficulty. The time of rest has been a great mercy. They've all been very kind to me here, but this I would say, standing as I do in view of God and eternity, I realise that patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred or bitterness towards anyone. She was executed the next morning. A Christian woman who was absolutely sure of her eternal life because she trusted in the Lord Jesus. See, when we forgive and we forget, We're doing something that is completely unnatural to this world. We're doing something that is supernatural. We're doing something that shows that God is at work in us, bringing us forgiveness, for which we are so thankful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for all the things that you have given to us, but above all for the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, by which we have come to forgiveness. And we pray, Father, that you would so grasp our hearts with that forgiveness that the way in which we live will not be like the Pharisees or like the world around about us, always seeking to be justified and justify our place and seeking to be treated fairly. Help us to accept the unfairness of this world with grace and forgiveness in our hearts and generosity in all our relationships that people may see our lives and glorify you, our Father in heaven. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.